I have attended many weddings. I have been a member of the bridal party on more than one occasion. I've been the reception MC once, a scripture reading, reader at least one other time, and a bridal party attendant in 10 weddings. I've purchased and worn a variety of bridesmaid gowns, some tasteful, some perhaps not so much. For a time in the 1980s, every gown I wore was styled like an antebellum southern party dress with a stiff hoop skirt contraption underneath. And of course, these dresses were all Pepto-Bismol pink. We were quite gorgeous. I've worn pastel floral skirts, vivid cobalt blue palazzo pants, whimsical lacy sheath tea dresses, fuchsia dresses with matching pumps. I've made the bridesmaid rounds. I've been there when the groom locked his knees and fainted a little bit. I've been there when the unity candle would not light in unity. And when the officiant called the bride by the wrong name. <laughs> a little awkward. I've been to lovely receptions in expensive banquet halls with fountains and champagne and humble receptions in the church basement green room. I've even caught the bouquet a time or two. And I am happy to report that although the national divorce rate is now running about uh, 50% in terms of the weddings, um, in terms of the weddings where I have been an active participant, only two have ended in divorce as of today. Now that's a statistic of 17%, significantly lower than the national average. Now I am not taking all of the credit <laughs> for the success of these marriages, which are still going strong, but if you know of anyone who wants just a little extra bonus bump of insurance as they plan their nuptials, just let me know. I think I could still work a Pepto-Bismol pink dress if I was asked to do so for a good cause. <laughs> However, despite all of my wedding participation, I have never had the starring role in my own wedding. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. I am the epitome of that saying. But you know, that was never my plan. I never expected that singleness would be my destiny. I always assumed I would be a wife and mother. And I have spent time with some men who seemed to believe or told me that they would play the part in my life as my husband. However, for a variety of reasons, that was not to be. This has left me feeling all kinds of ways. Confused, rejected, disappointed, sad, lonely, kind of second rate. When Kevin invited me to preach this sermon, I was honored and pleased. First, I was glad, honestly, that he selected a single person to preach the sermon on singleness. Second, I thought the sermon would be simple to write and come together easily. Ha! <laughs> Little did I realize what deep emotions it would trigger in me and others who've been walking the path of singleness as believers. I didn't expect there would be a landmine or two that I was at risk to step on. In a couple of weeks, Father Kevin will discuss living in God's family while married. And I will say that for many in the church, the state of living as married is considered normal or healthy. And I had thought for many years that perhaps the reason I am single 
is because of some spiritual flaw or some unsolved personal puzzle. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, Christianity Today published an article titled, Singleness is Not a Sin. While I was grateful to hear the conclusion of the author at the outset of the piece, I was nevertheless troubled to hear that the topic was considered still up for debate. Now that I'm a little older, I have met many unhappy married people, some of whom seem like maybe they have their own flaws and unsolved personal puzzles. And I'm not now convinced that it is just my flaws and inadequacies that have kept me single. But that belief does persist in the church. Previously, I had never been aware of any overt statements about my singleness being linked to my being inferior spiritually or emotionally. It was just always a subtle sense for me. But in preparing for this sermon, I have found many overt statements, both from prominent Christian writers and preachers, as well as from the experiences of close friends. Um, I read a quote from a best-selling Christian author who has written numerous books on marriage. This is a good one. He said, if you want to become more like Jesus, I can't imagine any better thing to do than to get married. Marriage is the preferred route to becoming more like him. And I'm thinking, dude, you know Jesus was not married, right? <laughs> Another prominent Christian leader, who I will not name, said at a conference for pastors, singleness is an assault on marriage. Another highly recommended evangelical book on marriage states, Satan dishonors marriage by fooling us into believing that singleness is okay. Um, I've read still other pastors and Christian leaders who state that singleness is defined by selfishness. And it hurts me to hear these statements. And by the way, honestly, I'm not really aware of too many singles who say, oh yes, I've had many opportunities to marry, but I chose singleness to pursue my own selfish interests and to revel in my freedom day in and day out. It's just not what we singles say to each other when we're alone together. <laughs> And now you may be thinking, I would never say that. But I know we all have thoughts about people who are single. Maybe we don't say they're selfish, but we might say, I wonder what's wrong with her that she never married. Or just in our head, maybe we think it. Or why hasn't he married? He needs to get on with it. And even as a single person, to my own shame, I've caught myself thinking this sometimes. So while these positions I've quoted from these unnamed Christian leaders are extreme, we can understand some of the misperceptions and hurtful beliefs about singleness do somehow permeate our thinking. In talking to some single friends about the experience, their experiences in the church, I've heard stories from them. Thankfully, no one has said to them, to their face at least, that Satan is using them personally to dishonor marriage. <laughs> Um, but they have been told that since they're single, it is assumed they will be able to do more volunteer work at church. I'm, I'm signing you up twice. Um, they've had the experience that people assume something must be wrong with them in order for them to still be single. And they have had a sense 
um, and sometimes overtly stated uh, sense, <laughs> that since they have not undergone the marital rite of passage, they must not fully be a fully mature um, adult. Sometimes they've had the experience of not being included with other friends or couples in social events because they're single. That happens sometimes, unfortunately, if they used to be part of a couple and then they're divorced or widowed, somehow they're just not convenient to still include. And sometimes it can just get more banal, like singles might just avoid certain services like the Maundy Thursday service, because if everyone is there washing a family member's foot, it might feel painful and awkward to just stand there and if, what if no one offers to wash my foot? Um, I'd like to posit here that maybe being single is not a flaw. Perhaps it can even be a calling. It can be difficult to live chastely as a single person, but in the context of God's family, in a healthy church community, being single does not have to be and should not be a lonely and isolated journey. In a healthy church community, whether single or married, we should have a sense of belonging and real relationships. Thank you. <laughs> let's, let's take another look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's interesting that here Paul discusses singleness as preferable to marriage, just not, not just as an alternative, but preferable. As Paul says, it is his opinion in the spirit, not a mandate, but he does give us an important glimpse into what singleness can offer the body of Christ. As we look at this passage, we must acknowledge that this is a place in scripture where singleness is highlighted as a preferred lifestyle. And by the way, Paul seems to be single as well. Listen as I reread this passage. Now about virgins, and most uh, commentators agree that this is referring to women and not necessarily never married women, but perhaps um, widows as well. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. And then skipping ahead to verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good and not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now I want to pause for a moment and say, what is stirred up for you as you listen to these verses? 
Is it difficult to consider Paul's recommendation? Do you think of the fear of being alone, of navigating life as a single person? Do you think it might be fear that makes it hard for those who are married to truly embrace the singles in their midst? Is it scary to think it could be you who could be single? In verse 26, Paul says it's best to remain single to devote oneself to the Lord. He also says this is due to the present distress. Now, scholars have discussed many different explanations for this vague allusion to, for what this vague allusion to present distress could mean. Some think perhaps he was referring to a famine that was occurring when Paul wrote it. I've heard many preachers say he was referring to the end times and thus they use that as a justification to dismiss his advice since the end times have been enduring many years um, since he wrote that letter, so we don't have to listen to it, the advice. Um, some more contemporary commentators resolve the conflict by saying both and. They say that the present distress can refer both to specific issues Paul and the Corinthians were facing at that time, as well as the beginning of distress related to walking as a believer in the last days. With either interpretation, I think we can safely consider it as a word relevant for us in this present day. About 30 miles north of where I grew up in Maine is a tiny village called New Gloucester. That is the seat of a small community of Christian believers, the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. They're more commonly called the Shakers. The community was founded in the 1700s. They still persist to this day. They were called the Shakers because of their habit of very enthusiastic dancing in their worship. One tenet of their belief is for all community members to practice celibacy. It is not surprising then that at last count, there's only three remaining shakers. <laughs> you can see that if everyone practices a celibate single life, then it may not be entirely practical for a variety of reasons, the least of which is that not the least of which is that the community may not be too long for this world. I'm not really advocating for that, and I don't think Paul is advocating for that in this passage either. In verse 35, Paul talks about living in undivided devotion to the Lord. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion. And then if we look earlier in the chapter at verse 7, I'm take us back there. Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. When talking about gifts, Paul uses the word charisma, meaning spiritual gift, to discuss singleness. In this sense, it appears that singleness is a gift meant to bless and edify the church. Now, I will say this may not be a gift that you or I asked for or welcomed. I know I didn't. <laughs> Similarly, I'm not sure that prophets with a different charisma or gift are always happy to be provided with that one. What does it mean to edify the church with this gift? Does it mean I can more easily host people in my home because I don't have to kick out a husband and children? to make a quiet space for a prayer circle? 
sometimes maybe? Does it mean I may have some more flexibility to volunteer on occasion for some extra duties at church? Sometimes maybe. Does it mean people should assume I have nothing better to do and I should always be available for altar cleanup? I hope not. But sometimes maybe. For me, it meant when my mother was ill, I was able to visit her and my father to support them in her last years. It was easier for me to do this than it was for my married brother, who is a father of three. It also meant I was able to start my private practice, unfettered with concerns about the financial impact on a family. I was and, able, and am able to work to intervene clinically in the cycle of sexual violence in my business without worrying about the negative impact on the loved ones in my life. And that has been a blessing and perhaps a gift I did not really ask for. If you are single or may be given the gift of being single, how may you be asked to bless the church and the world? Who are the single people in our midst? Now, Father Kevin will like this short list because it is alliterative. <laughs> steady, switching, and second time. Now, there are people like me who I would call steady singles. This is the never married, um, including those who have a special sense of being called or gifted to be single. Then there are the switching singles. These are people who are hoping and expecting to and, uh, hoping and expecting to marry, and so are in a transitional time before marriage. Everyone who is married now has been in this category at some point. And finally, we have second-time singles. These are people who are widowed or divorced. Um, this, uh, this group is a combination of steady and switching singles, and they may find that they move back into marriage, or they may find that they now have a gift to share with the community in this new season of singleness. Each group is marked by unique needs and challenges. While this third group, the second time singles, of course, may have specific losses and griefs to process, especially as they come into this group newly single and freshly bereft, each of these groups may feel bereaved at some point as betrayal, abandonment, and loss have played, may have played a role in their situations. Now, let me tell you about some single people who have inspired me. My granny Nick was a significant person in my life. She died in 2008 after living 102 years. Uh, she would be characterized as a second time single according to my uh, alliterative taxonomy. She was married to my grandfather for a little less than 50 years and did not remarry after he passed. Ultimately, she was single for as many years in her life as she was married, if not more. She devoted herself to her family and to the church. Until she was almost 100, she played the piano on Wednesday nights at the local prayer meeting. She was always the first to bake a pan of muffins to welcome a new neighbor, even in her assisted living apartment. And if my memory serves me correctly, she died on a Tuesday after attending church on Sunday wearing her red shoes. At some point when she was in her 80s or 90s, I learned that one of her widowed neighbors had proposed to her years earlier. Still full of the romance fueled by one too many Harlequin novels, I quizzed her. Granny, were you ever tempted to take Mr. Jones up on his offer? 
And in an uncensored and feisty moment, she replied, goodness, no, why would I want to get married and take care of an old man? <laughs> the, the fact is, freed of her marital obligations, she leaned into her singleness and served the Lord in ways she could not when she was married. Being a caretaker at heart and having taken care of many children, many grandchildren, and a husband, once she was single, she was able to focus more on things of the Lord and not be the family caretaker that she had been for so many years. In preparing for this sermon, I've thought of other single people who have been role models for me, some famous authors with well-known ministries whose lives and words have spoken to me, like Corey Ten Boom, Henry Nowen, Wesley Hill. I'd call them steady singles devoted in their, devoted in their lives to Christian service. And then I've thought of others in the more personal realm, like Kathy Larson, my pioneer girl leader, available to mentor and befriend me as a goofy middle school girl. And then Ann Ferguson, my college professor, who demonstrated to me that a woman could lead a respectable professional life as a single woman. Throughout most of my life, I assumed I was a switching single, someone who would transition into marital life at some point. I dated as an adolescent and as an adult, and I spent a lot of time in between my dating relationships in prayer that the Lord would provide me with a Christian man to partner with me in my life. I wonder how different it would have been for me spiritually and emotionally if I'd also been praying for discernment about a call to singleness as well. I never had a sense of that calling, but honestly, never really explored it that much either. It was buried under those uncomfortable feelings I confessed to you before, like the disappointment, the sadness, the rejection. I didn't even consider it as an option. I wish I'd fully appreciated Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians a bit sooner in my life. In our modern Western society, we have lost a sense of intimacy separate from sexual relationships collapsing the two into each other. It's difficult for us to imagine intimacy without a sexual component. As a side note, in my practice, I spend a lot of time with my clients trying to teach them about how to be close to someone without sex, how to share emotions and talk to people to become close. It's often the first time they've ever considered that as a possibility. At any rate, in our, in our culture at large, complying with the Christian value of chastity as a single person can seem quaint or even impossible. I think that singles have a special ministry to the church in this area. Danielle Trewick, an Australian pastor, is the author of a book called The Meaning of Singleness. It was recently published by InterVarsity Press. She highlights the importance of celibacy in a recent uh, Christianity Today interview. She says, too often the church sees celibacy as oppressive rather than expansive, so the church sees it the same way the larger culture does. There are two reasons I think that is wrong. The first is that single people committed to honoring God with their bodies can testify to others that they're not enslaved to sexual longings in a world that celebrates sexual desire as the total of who you are. Celibate singles can show that we can have rich and fulfilled lives 
even without that. The second reason takes things further into eschatology, relating to the ultimate judgment of humankind, into an eschatological perspective. As resurrected people in God's new creation, we will retain our male or female natures, but won't express these natures through sex and marriage. Remember last week, Father Kevin discussed this, uh, referring to Matthew 22. We will not express these natures through sex and marriage. Single Christians get to remind the world now that there's more to being sexual than having sex. And I would add, there's more to being fully human than having sex. I heard Dr. Christopher Ewan speak a few years ago. He grew up very close to here in Downers Grove, and he's the author of a book I highly recommend, Out of a Far Country. He has taught, at Bi uh, taught Bible at Moody Bible Institute. I went to hear him speak and was expecting to hear him talk about his uh, theological and personal perspectives on living life as a gay celibate Christian. But instead, I found myself moved as he challenged me in the audience to consider the needs of the singles in their church families and to remember to provide the fellowship, support, and loving connection so that singles do not feel isolated. I felt like he was talking to me about my needs. He said that the secular culture assumes that celibacy equates to isolation. He says that's why people have a hard time uh, understanding why celibacy can be a viable option. He continued to state that if we expect Christian singles and Christian LGBTQ folks to live a celibate life, we must be committed to providing community. In a healthy church community, celibacy should not equal isolation. As a side note, my nephew knows how warm the church community can be. I'm thinking now about one of my nephews who grew up in the church but is not now walking with the Lord. For his work, he moves frequently and finds himself needing to build up a new circle of friends with each transfer. He said to his sister, well, if you moved, it would be easy for you to make friends. You would just go to church and you would have friends real quickly. It's harder for me. It's the fellowship and potential connection to others in the church, I think, that may pull him back to faith in the end. He knows that the church community has the potential to erase isolation. Anyways, now back to singleness in the church. What does this all mean for us? The first thing I would like to declare to you, along with the editors of Christianity Today, is singleness is not a sin. <laughs> um, but if we really do accept this as a point of theology, that singleness is not a sin, and along with Paul, that is a valid and sometimes preferable way of life for a follower of Jesus, then how might we live differently? Maybe we will be slower to assume unhealthy conclusions about the singles in our midst. Perhaps we will consider the value that they bring to our fellowship as they are. Perhaps as we talk to our children about what their lives will be when they grow up, we'll be careful about our assumptive statements. Perhaps as parents or youth workers, we'll say that when they grow up to serve the Lord, they may be a spouse or a single person, depending on how the Lord calls them. Might we stop hinting to our children that we're hoping they'll start dating or asking them when they'll give us grandchildren? Perhaps it would mean programming 
um, in our churches that does not isolate singles from the rest of the church. As a younger single, I attended churches where I felt separated into a singles ghetto. I wasn't really invited into truly adult leadership roles, but seemed to be segregated off into a group where it was hoped we would all couple up somehow. In churches hoping to minister to singles, an approach like we have at Savior is preferable to what I experienced in my 20s and 30s. And I am happy to report that a quick review of programming at some of the local churches showed me that several of them have changed that ghetto-style programming to something different. I see a lot of local churches having groups for people in their 20s and 30s where singles and marrieds are coming together, and it's not just singles hoping that they'll couple up and they're not off in a ghetto. I do think our programming at Savior is um, done very well. I like the multi-generational approach we have for activities. The practice of integrating singles with others in the church avoids the isolation that can be fostered otherwise. For example, the gatherings that Hope arranges and are coming soon, this next month, very soon, um, have couples, families with kids, and singles all mixed together. It's a great recipe to validate and include us singles as part of the church family. One of my favorite activities from the past has been game night, and that's a great mixer for all ages and people of the church. Um, tomorrow, I know that Mary and Sarah have worked to plan a retreat with the same parameters, come one, come all. Finally, and maybe even most important, I would say, single and married, we all need our focus to be on our reason for living, serving the Lord, our Savior. I would like to invite us all to consider some of the words penned by author Alicia Aikens. She has an excellent blog I'd recommend to all of you, feetcrymercy.com. She's a single woman and a theologian, and one thing I was drawn to is called a catechism for the single. Um, she developed it in response to the needs of herself and some single friends who confided in her about their loneliness and sorrows. I've taken a couple excerpts that are all scripturally based to um, refocus on all, refocus all of us on what our purpose is here together. What is the chief end of my life as a believer? To have my soul so consumed by the delight of loving and being loved by God and so mesmerized by his singular sufficiency for my deep thirst for love, acceptance, belonging, and significance that it testifies before the world to the preeminent excellencies of God as Lord, lover, and friend. What is our only gain in singleness or marriage? That we may better know Christ. I have no other gain. The freedom of singleness and the intimacy of marriage are but flotsam and jetsam without his supremacy in them. Both flourish or founder to the extent Christ is known through them. Whether married or single, we are journeying together, loving God, loving others, and loving life. As Father Kevin said last week, while it is impossible to be married alone, 
it is also impossible to be celibate and single alone. Family of God, I need you, and you need me. Let's do this together. Amen.